The passage that we just read together, Luke 11, 14 through 23, has a structure. There are two parts to it. There's a, there's a descriptive part and a didactic part. Or in other words, there's an event and then there's a doctrine that is drawn from the nature of the event. Or there is a fact and then there is an interpretation of the fact. Or in other words, again, something happens and then Jesus tells us about the significance of that happening. Jesus teaches us about the significance of that happening. So this two-part structure will form the outline of my message today. We will look at, first, the event that occurs. Then we will look at the teaching or doctrine that Jesus gives as He interprets the event for us. And then, finally, we'll make application to our own lives. So let's begin with the event that occurs in this passage. We need to understand in order to make sense of this event. That the story of Scripture, the story of history, is the story of the cosmos in conflict. We are in the middle of a battle. We are in the middle of a war. God created angels, and some rebelled. And all of history is a story of the conflict between God and His rebellious angels. And we humans are caught in the middle of this conflict. We are the battleground. John 10 and verse 10 tells us that the principal combatants in this war are Jesus and Satan, battling, as it were, over human souls. We all know this verse. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Referring to Satan, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Referring to himself, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Another way of describing the conflict is to say that there are two kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of God over which Jesus rules and the kingdom of Satan over which Satan rules. Life in the kingdom of God is abundant. Life in the kingdom of Satan is stolen, is killed, is extinguished, is destroyed. The event recorded for us here in Luke 11, 14-23, describes one battle in this cosmic war. Here we see a clash of two kingdoms. We see Jesus and Satan going head-to-head in a battle over this one man's life. The man himself is the battleground. The man is the territory over which these two kingdoms are fighting. Kingdoms collide on that ground. Jesus and Satan, in other words, draw battle lines on either side of this man and go to war. We know three things about this man's condition. The first is that he was mute. 
couldn't speak. The second is that he was possessed by a demon, which means that a demon lived inside of him and influenced him. The third thing that we know about this man is that he was mute because of the demon possession. So not only was he mute, not only was he possessed by a demon, but those two things were not coincidental. There was a cause and effect relationship. He was mute because he was possessed by a demon. This man then was under Satan's power physically and spiritually. His bondage was not merely physical. In other words, it was not merely that he was mute. Nor was his bondage merely spiritual. It was not merely that he was possessed by a demon and had a spiritual problem. He had a physical problem and a spiritual problem. All of this means that this man needed more than a notepad or some classes in sign language. His bondage was not merely confined to his vocal organs. We should not imagine that this man had a totally normal life other than having to work around and manage his disability. This man was physically and spiritually under Satan's destructive influence. I believe that this means that we could fairly and appropriately compare this man's silence in an analogous way to the silence of many victims of abuse who feel violated, degraded, and afraid. I say it's by way of analogy because this man actually literally could not speak. It's not simply that he felt afraid to speak. But if if we're just trying to put ourselves in his shoes, what it would have felt like to be mute because you were demon-possessed. What I'm trying to highlight is it's not mere inability to speak. There is a horrible power at work in this man and upon this man which has caused his muteness. And so in an analogous way, his silence could be, I think, fairly compared to those who have been victims of abuse. There's there would have been a feeling of violation, degradation, and fear attending this man's muteness. Not only was this man suffering physical, but it affected his whole person, his emotions, his mindset, his attitude, his spirit. I read a horrific statistic on CNN a few years ago that 59% of women in Alaska have either experienced sexual abuse or intimate partner violence. 59%. That's 6 out of 10 women have been sexually abused or have experienced intimate partner violence in Alaska. The reporter said that And I quote, people in Alaska are abused and they feel like they must remain silent about it. Listen to a quote from a woman who felt oppressed into silence as a result of the abuse. It was like, do I exist? Do I even have a voice? Can't anyone hear me crying? The perpetrator makes you feel so ashamed, like it's all my fault. I felt worthless. I didn't feel human at all. I felt like I was just a thing. I don't know offhand what the statistics are in Barbados regarding abuse, but we have a problem 
here as well. And there are many men and women here in this country who feel, I'm sure, similar to the woman that I just quoted. And I think we could probably assume that the man in the biblical narrative before us felt likewise violated and abused in some way by the demon who had taken possession of his body and his soul and not merely his vocal cords. In other words, what I'm saying is demon possession is not less than abuse by another person. So whatever feelings and whatever mindset, whatever fear, whatever sense of degradation and violation accompanies abuse at the hands of another person, surely this man would have experienced at least that. And so along with his muteness is this sense which the woman in Alaska put into words. Do I exist? Can't anyone hear me crying? I feel worthless. I don't feel human anymore. I am just a thing. This situation would have been awful. Imagine being under the influence of resident demons. Body and soul. 24-7. Unable to reach out for help. Unable to connect to anyone you love. This man's situation would have been awful. But into this situation, in this case, comes Jesus. He casts out the demon. It is as if Jesus said to the abuser, No, you be silent. You no longer have a voice. You are no longer in charge. You will no longer torment this man. This is the event. Jesus wins the battle and sends the enemy packing. This is what happened. In the context of a cosmic war between Jesus and Satan, in a clash of kingdoms, Jesus wins. Jesus wins a battle fought over a man's soul. The enemy said, this is my territory. Jesus said, no, this is my territory. This man belongs to me. Jesus wins. So what are we to make of this? How are we to interpret its significance? From here we transition from the descriptive section to the didactic section, or from the event to its interpretation. From what happened to what Jesus teaches us about what happened. Let's look now at Jesus' teaching related to the event then. Jesus' interpretation of the event's significance. The first thing that Jesus does in his teaching is to refute those who thought that he was a servant of Satan. Or who at least doubted that he was a servant of God. That there were these types of people, those who doubted that Jesus was a servant of God or or even thought that Jesus was a servant of Satan, is evident on the surface of the text. Verses 15 and 16 tell us this. Some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. 
while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. So we see a spectrum of people. There are those who say, oh, the way he can cast out demons is because he's using the power of demons. And then there are others who may not go so far, but they want more signs to test him, as if he hasn't done enough to show that he's God's servant. Jesus shows first the irrationality of their unbelief. Verses 17 and 18. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. He just, he just makes a point that we all know and understand. If everybody in your house draws a gun on one another and starts shooting, what happens to the household? If you look at countries that have been embroiled in civil war for years or decades, you don't see healthy, thriving nations. You see that countries embroiled in civil war are in a bad way. And households that are divided against themselves fall. They crumble. Jesus is just pointing out the obvious. Alistair Begg puts... In this way, Satan minus Satan equals nothing. This is the absurdity of accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. Jesus is like, well, what kind of moron would have a kingdom like that where he fights against himself? If Satan is trying to win this cosmic conflict, he wouldn't send his demons to cast out demons. This is basically what Jesus is saying in verses 17 and 18. But Jesus shows more than simply the irrationality of their unbelief. He shows the wicked irrationality of their unbelief. In other words, it's not just that they were not smart enough to be rational. It's that it was their wickedness, their evil hearts, which drove them to be irrational. In verse 19, Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, the idea of exorcisms wasn't foreign to these people. They acknowledged in principle the reality of, of a cosmic battle between God and Satan. And they acknowledged already in principle the possibility of God's victory in the here and now, in the exorcisms of evil spirits. They acknowledged that. Therefore, it shouldn't have been a stretch for them to believe that Jesus was, in this instance, an agent of God's victory. But they would not believe it. Their hearts were inclined away from Christ before the event occurs. They skew the obvious conclusion to suit their unbelieving presuppositions. In other words, the evidence was there, but it didn't fit their pre-established conclusions. So they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It's easy to mock and scoff at them. But the scripture teaches us that this is the natural state of man. 
we naturally, irrationally refuse to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. But it's not because the evidence is not there. It's because, as Romans 1 tells us, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or Jesus himself teaches us that if we will not believe Moses and the prophets, in other words, the scriptures, we will not believe even if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, naturally speaking, our minds are made up not to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're just acting like all unbelievers. They're acting like I acted before I came to faith. They're acting like you acted before you came to faith. The problem before you came to faith was not that there was not enough evidence out there. The problem was not that God had not been clear enough. The problem was that not that God had not done enough things throughout history to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. The problem was inside me and inside you. You did not believe because you would not believe. You irrationally suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, not because you didn't have the intellectual capacity to be rational, but because your wickedness drove you to that irrationality. This is the state of all unbelievers, in fact. And even in Jesus' teaching in that other passage, even a miraculous resurrection wouldn't change that. And in this passage, even the manifest power of God working through Jesus to command a demon to come out of a man and restore his powers of speech, even the manifest power of God evident in the event that occurs here wouldn't change these people's response. So Jesus points out first the wicked irrationality of the doubters. That's the first thing that Jesus teaches in this section. But the next thing that Jesus does is assert the truth. He deals with the substance of their objection. Not merely clearing away the nonsense that they spewed in rejection of what he had done. But he actually asserts the truth of how they ought to interpret the event over and against their wickedly irrational assessment of what occurred. Jesus says in verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and he's already established that it is by implication and by dealing with their nonsensical argument, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus is telling us here, this is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. This is an instance where God's kingdom is made visible an instance of the kingdom of God coming in other words I am the Messiah 
I am the promised king who is coming to usher in God's rule and reign. Now here's where we approach what we need to take away from this passage today because this is the main thrust of the whole section. This event is a manifestation of the kingdom of God coming. The kingdom of God has come upon you. If this is what the kingdom of God coming looks like, then the kingdom of God, therefore, is not merely physical. Theological liberals would have you believe that the kingdom of God is strictly physical, albeit theological liberals will tell you not miraculous physical but not miraculous they would have you believe that the gospel of the kingdom is that wherever we minister in compassion as Jesus did wherever the hungry are fed wherever the diseased are treated wherever the homeless are housed etc there is the full extent of the kingdom of God well this passage shows that to be untrue Because the kingdom of God includes spiritual victory. This is Jesus over Satan. This man's soul was delivered as well as his body from the clutches of Satan. However, the opposite is also true. In reaction to theological liberalism, many conservative evangelicals have spiritualized the kingdom so thoroughly that there remains no place for its physical manifestation. But to spiritualize so is to overlook the obvious. This man's vocal cords were delivered as well as his soul. The kingdom of God, therefore, is not merely a spiritual reality that is impotent to affect this physical earth. The kingdom of God includes spiritual and physical realities. The spiritual victory of Jesus over Satan and his hold on our souls is not the full extent of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in its fullness, at its consummation, will include both physical and spiritual dominion of Christ over His enemies. And we may see glimpses and foretastes of that consummation throughout human history leading up to that day. That's why we pray for the sick to be healed. We pray even for miraculous healings, for the lame to walk, for the blind to see. Because the kingdom of God not only is coming, But Jesus teaches us here, the kingdom of God has come. It's in seed form, not full flower. So we can't name and claim and decree and declare all these sorts of miracles as there are no absolute promises for this time. But listen, we believe that Jesus reigns. 
and that His reign is not merely over the spiritual. As if we are going to be lame and sickly forever while our souls live in bliss in heaven. So we pray. We petition God that His kingdom would be increasingly established on earth as it is in heaven. And we trust that in His wisdom, it will come in due time, in His timing, but both in a spiritual and in a physical way. As the hymn that we'll sing later says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Where does the sun's successive journeys run? That's where Jesus shall reign. From shore to shore. From Animal Flower Cave to the South Coast. From Browns Beach to Catawash. Everywhere that the sun's successive journeys run, Jesus shall reign. Every sort of thing that Adam plunged into sin and corruption shall be redeemed and restored in Christ Jesus. This is our hope as Christians. In the explanation that Jesus gives next after asserting in verse 20 that the kingdom of God has come upon you, who is the strong man and who is the stronger man? Remember that the context of this analogy is the cosmic war between God and fallen angels. When a strong man, verse 21, fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and devoid and divides his spoil. Who is the strong man and who is the stronger man? Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Remember that the cosmic war is between God and His fallen angels who are created beings. In other words, this cosmic conflict is between the Creator and His creation. One is superior to the other. We ought not to have this view where God and Satan are these co-equal light and darkness battling one another and that the end of all things is up in the air. This is the Creator versus His creation. This is not a war of equals. Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. This passage is teaching us that Jesus will overcome Satan. Jesus is attacking and overcoming Satan. Satan is the strong man, fully armed, guarding his palace, his dominion. And remember, everything that Adam plunged into sin is understood to be under the dominion of Satan, apart from divine rescue. 
Satan is the strong man, fully armed, guarding his palace, his dominion. And Jesus is the one stronger in verse 22. Jesus is attacking and overcoming Satan. According to the parallel passage in Matthew, Jesus has bound Satan and is plundering his house. That's what's happening in human history right now. But wait, you might say, isn't Jesus talking about a future reality? No. He's explaining what happened when he cast the demon out of the mute man. He's explaining the nature of that. That's the context of this statement. Jesus is explaining the nature of his mission. The nature of the kingdom of God. Not that will come upon you. But the kingdom of God that has come upon you. There is a future dimension or degree to the coming of the kingdom, for sure. But Jesus is teaching us here that it is His mission to attack and overcome the strong man, to bind the strong man and to plunder His house. And it has begun now. In other words, though the kingdom of God is, in some sense, not yet, It is also already. Let me explain further. Psalm 110 and verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The New Testament tells us twice that this promise was fulfilled at Christ's ascension. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 26. This Jesus God raised up and of all of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for david did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 2.32 Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and He draws the connection between that and the prophecy of Psalm 110. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 and verse 13. After making purification for sins, He, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then verse 13, And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is not only resurrected, but Jesus is ascended to sit at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning in fulfillment of that promise made in Psalm 110 that the Son of David would sit there at God's right hand and reign until God makes His enemies a footstool for His feet. In the same vein, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 25 and 26 say, He must reign, 
until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. These verses mean to tell us that Jesus is currently overcoming Satan. Jesus is currently ruling and reigning over this world. Jesus currently has bound Satan and is plundering his house. Jesus is making his enemies his footstool. He is reigning until all of his enemies are under his feet. And at his return, his rule will be consummated and death itself will be destroyed. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, Luke tells us that his first book, the Gospel of Luke, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This implies that Acts is about what Jesus continues to do by the power of His Spirit through the church. In Acts, we see Jesus overcoming Satan in instance after instance. In the remainder of human history thus far, we've seen the church grow from roughly 120 people at Pentecost to who knows the exact number, maybe somewhere around 2 billion at present. Jesus is overcoming the strong man. Jesus has bound Satan and is plundering his house. Jesus is building his church. And listen, the gates of hell are not able to resist. You may look at recent events and cultural decline both in North America on the major news networks and here in the Caribbean and say that we're losing. It might appear that Jesus is not overcoming at present. But let me remind you of this. The battle is not the war. The part is not the whole. In 1940, it looked as though the Nazis had the upper hand in World War II. And Winston Churchill gave this speech. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. In 1941, the situation had changed and Britain had gained the upper hand. And Churchill gave this speech. You cannot tell from appearances how things will go. Sometimes imagination makes things out far worse than they are. We stood all alone a year ago. And to many countries, it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished. All this tradition of ours, our songs, our school history... 
this part of the history of this country were gone and finished and liquidated. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate, but instead our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching and no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. I believe that those dark days of Britain parallel the dark days of the North American church or the Caribbean church at present. Elsewhere in other regions of the world, the church is growing in leaps and bounds, but here we are struggling. Here we are losing many battles. But the war is not lost. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. We shall take hold of the promise that Christ will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in the power of God's Spirit, with God's promise before our eyes, we can be sure that the church has only to persevere to conquer. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the overcoming, stronger man. Now, through His church, by His Spirit. We will not see complete redemption of this world before Christ's return. We will not see the world entirely under the rule and reign of Christ prior to His return. There is a future aspect of God's coming kingdom, to be sure. But we will see progress on a global scale, just as we see progress in our own spiritual lives. We await Christ's return for our own individual redemption to be complete. We await Christ's return for His rule and reign to be completely manifest and realized in our own souls. We await a future aspect of salvation individually. And yet we do make progress now. Likewise, it shall be with the church as a whole, with the coming of the kingdom into this world. We await the completion. We await the full flower. But we make progress now. One day sin will be defeated. One day death will be no more. One day there will be no more statistics for me to quote on abuse because abuse will be no more. One day we won't be talking about demonic possession anymore because there will be no more demonic possession. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And Jesus is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand now, already. Moving history toward that day. Putting all of His enemies increasingly under His feet until His return when that glorious day that I just described comes to pass. This is the Christian's hope. That though there is a cosmic war raging all around us, 
for every sort of thing that Adam plunged into sin. Satan would love to keep it there. To see it all cast into the bottomless pit. Into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels along with him. There is another who has a different purpose for these things that Adam has plunged into sin. There is a Savior. And that Savior will win. Jesus is the stronger man who overcomes and attacks Satan, who binds him and plunders his house. Jesus will win. Listen to these words from Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There is a cosmic war going on around us for every sort of thing that Adam plunged into sin and corruption. But Jesus will win that war. And Jesus has begun winning it already. That's how Jesus interprets the event in our story today. That's the significance that he attaches to. He says that the way that he delivered this man, physically and spiritually, he will also deliver the cosmos. He says that this is how the story ends. This is the consummation of all things. The manifest rule and reign of Christ over all things. So we've seen the event. We've seen the interpretation. What remains is its application for our everyday lives. And Jesus gives us that too. Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral ground. So are you with Jesus? Are you gathering with Him? If not, then you are against Him. There's no neutral ground. The Christian life looks like lining up with Jesus in this cosmic battle, standing against in principle, in prayer, in word, and in deed, everything that Satan's kingdom is for. The Christian life looks like gathering others to Christ's side, proclaiming the inevitable victory of our King and calling for His enemies to surrender. Is that what your life looks like? Are you with Jesus? Are you gathering with Him? If not, Jesus says, you are not merely neutral. Jesus says you are against Him. You are not a Christian. 
Maybe you were born into a Christian family. Maybe you grew up in a Christian culture. Maybe you attended a Christian school or at least a school in which prayers were prayed and hymns were sung. Maybe you've been instructed in the things of God. But listen, if you are not lining up with Jesus in this cosmic battle, standing for Him and for what His kingdom is about and against Satan and against what Satan's kingdom is about, if you are not gathering with Him others into His kingdom, calling His enemies to surrender before Him, proclaiming His inevitable victory. If that's not what your life looks like, Jesus tells you that you are self-deceived. You are not a Christian. That's what the Christian life looks like. Have you come to Jesus and surrender? Have you personally, not have your parents, have your teachers, has your culture as a whole been largely Christianized? Have you come to Jesus and surrendered? Have you dropped your weapons? Have you laid down your guns? Have you stopped fighting Him and surrendered to Him, asking for terms of peace? Are you urging others to do the same? Or are you still against Jesus? Those are the only two options. There is no neutral ground. If you are against Him, listen closely to this. If you are against Jesus, we know that He will win. We've talked about that all morning. But if you are against Jesus, His victory will be your defeat. Think about that. Yet terms of peace are held out to you today. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Join the winning team. Be there when that glorious day comes that I read to you about from Revelation 21. Be there. Be there with me. Be there with us. All of us who are trusting in Christ Jesus, be there with us. We want you to be there. We're trying to proclaim to you the victory of the King. We're trying to call you to lay down your guns and surrender. We're trying to get you to be there with us when God wipes away every tear from our eyes. If you're against Him, don't be against Him any longer. Make peace with that King. Put your faith in Jesus' ability to save you from your sin. It's penalty, it's power over you, and even one day it's presence entirely so that you will be free from sin. Put your faith in Jesus to win for you. The battle lines are drawn. Line up with Christ. A Christian believer in Christ Jesus, don't lose heart in the battle. As in every war, there are dark days. But Christ teaches us here that though Satan is strong, he is the one stronger. He shall overcome. And in him, 
we shall overcome. Continue to trust in the one who ascended to David's throne at the Father's right hand side. Continue to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Continue to gather. Continue to be with Jesus and not against Him. Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Christ's kingdom shall come and His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven.